Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. A couple of weeks ago, I found a book. I don't know if any of you have seen this. It's called The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. Anybody else ever seen this? Anyone? Yeah? Okay, a few of you have. Um, it's, it's, it's written by experts on how to survive like any kind of emergency. For instance, there's a chapter on here on how to escape from quicksand, um, how to wrestle an alligator, how to break down a door, how to land a plane. And uh, I thought I'd just share a few of them with you um, this evening. Um, this one I kind of like because you never know, this might happen. Um, how to escape from a mountain lion. Okay? If you ever wanted to know, next time you come across a mountain lion, here's what you do. Number one, do not run. Do not run. The animal most likely will, see, will have already seen and smelled you, and running will simply cause it to pay more attention. So just stand still. Number two, make yourself appear bigger by opening your coat wide. No? That's assuming you have a coat with you that day. Um, do not crouch down, number three. Number four, if you have small children with you, pick them up. <laughs> do all you can to appear larger. Number five, back away slowly or wait until the animal moves away. Number six, if the lion still behaves aggressively, throw stones. And number seven, if you are attacked, fight back, as if you couldn't figure that one out by yourself. Um, there's another one. This one's kind of cool. How to jump from a moving car. Just in case you ever want to want to do that, okay? Step number one, apply the emergency brake. This may or may not stop the car, but it might slow it down enough to make jumping a little bit safer. Number two, make sure you open the car door. Just, you know, just helping here. Number three, make sure you jump at an angle so that it takes you out of the path of the car. Don't jump under the wheels. Jump away from the car. Tuck your head and your arms and legs. Aim for a soft landing site and roll when you hit the ground. There you go. And then for those of you who are the most dangerous among us, um, how to survive if your parachute fails to open. As soon as you realize that your chute is bad, signal to a jumping companion whose chute has not yet opened that you are having a malfunction. When your companion, in parentheses, and your new best friend, gets to you, hook arms. Once you are hooked together, the two of you will still be falling at a terminal velocity of about 130 miles per hour. When your friend opens his chute, there will be no way either of you will be able to hold on to one another. Because of the G-forces will triple or quadruple by your body weight. So, to prepare for this problem, hook your arms into his chest strap or through the two sides of the front of his harness all the way up to your elbows and grab hold of your own strap. Number four, open the chute. The chute opening will shock, shock will be severe, probably enough to dislocate or break your arms. (laughs) Number five, steer the canopy. Your friend must now hold on to you with one arm while stretching his ca- steering the canopy with his other. If your friend's canopy is slow and big, you may hit the grass or dirt slowly enough just to break only a leg. And your chances of survival are pretty high. If his canopy is a fast one, however, your friend will have to steer to avoid hitting the ground too fast. You must also avoid power lines and other obstructions at all costs. Just so you know, all right? So, you know, if you ever get in one of those kind of situations, here's the book you need to have. Um... And you know what, truthfully, this book is written in all seriousness. It was written by experts in all of these fields. So so that we kind of have an idea of what happens when this kind of thing comes up. But we read it kind of as a joke. In fact, if you go to look for it in a bookstore, it'll be in the humor section. (laughs) Because, you know, it's just just fun stuff. It's, It's kind of funny, you know. 
until something like that actually happens. And then all of a sudden, it's not so funny anymore. It becomes very, very serious. I begin with this because we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about some very serious subjects. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about what happens when I die. What, what, what happens at the moment I die? What, where, what, how does that all work out? And then last week, Pastor Scott um, spoke on the subject of heaven, what we need to know about heaven. And, and so this week, my task is to talk about hell. And, and I told Scott this, uh, at a staff meeting on, Tuesday, on Wednesday morning, I came in, I said, you know what? I should have given you hell because it is not an easy subject to talk about. Um, and I, I usually enjoy. I enjoy sermon prep. I enjoy digging and studying and I, putting it together in a way that, that makes sense and people can understand it. I love preaching. But this week, not so much. Because it's, one of the things is because it's a, a difficult subject to talk about but secondly, because traditionally it has been taught and talked about in such distorted ways and, and almost to manipulate and prey on people's fears. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to talk tonight very honestly and very clearly about this subject because it is a serious subject. The Bible affirms one thing, well, it affirms a number of things. One of the things it affirms is that human beings are eternal. We have, every one of us, an eternal destiny. And that matters. That this world is not all that there is. Every one of us has an eternal destiny. And and it's one of two places. And Jesus, you might be surprised to know this, Jesus is the one who talked more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. The same Jesus who talked so much about God's love and forgiveness and all this, he also talked a lot about hell, more than anybody else in all Scripture. And we're going to look at one of the passages where he talked about that. It's in Luke chapter 16, if you want to pull out your Bibles, um, or grab one of the ones on the seat next to you. Uh, It's a story, a parable that Jesus told. And he begins in Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked at his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that cannot be fixed. That has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to there cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. 
He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else. And I was kind of thinking about that this week. Why did he talk so much about it? What is it that he wants us to know? Why did he keep talking about this one subject? And I think there's some answers here in this passage that we're going to look at because he did talk an awful lot about it. So why did he talk about so much about it? Why did Jesus talk so much about hell? I think one of the reasons is so that we would be confronted with its reality. That we would be confronted with the truth that hell is a real place. The human soul is not disposable. We all have a destiny. And it is either a destiny with God or a destiny without God. You read the story. And it comes a time when the beggar died. And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up. Now, see... Let me give you a little bit of the background, the Jewish understanding of this. Um, the Hebrew word is Sheol. Uh, the Greek equivalent is Hades. And, and it was believed to be kind of a holding place until the final judgment. And it was actually divided into two parts. There was paradise for those who were good. And, and for those who were not, there was Hades, Sheol, destruction. And so when, when Jesus is talking about this, he knows his audience. He knows what they're listening to. And he's telling them something about this. He's saying, this is a real place. This is a very real place. Now see, in our day, very few people believe in hell. Depends on what what, uh, survey you read or what poll you read. But I came across one this week. In the United States, adults, 75% of the population surveyed said they believe in heaven. Only 40% said they believe in an actual hell. And about 1% of them thought they might possibly be going there. <laughs> See, we, we, we have this, well, we're just way too sophisticated for such primitive notions. We have so much more education now. We don't believe those myths and those superstitions. Jesus said, no, it's a real place. It's a reality. And you need to know that. Some of us just don't believe in it because we're too sophisticated. Some of us believe in it, but we don't take it seriously. In fact, most people's idea of hell, most of their understanding of hell comes from like the far side cartoons, you know, like this one. There's two doors, okay? And the guy with the pitchfork is standing there and there's one door says, damned if you do. The other door says, damned if you don't. And the guy with the pitchfork is saying, come on, come on, it's either one or the other. And that's kind of our attitude. We don't want to think about it as a real place of torment. We don't want to think about it in those terms. And I'll tell you what, if I were Satan and I was bent on the the destruction of the human soul, if I was bent on all of that, you know what my strategy would be? Is to get people to not believe that it's a reality. Or if they believe it's a reality, to have them not take it quite so seriously. Jesus loves us too much. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. And when he speaks of hell, he uses some very powerful and dreadful descriptions. He gives us a picture of what it is like. We're told it's a place of isolation. And I want you to know that because sometimes people say really goofy things. And I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but I've had people say to me, well, you know what? 
if I'm going to hell, I'm going to have a lot of company. You know, all of my friends are going to be there too. And they got this idea that it's just going to be one big kegger, you know? And we're all just going to party, party, party. That is not the picture that God gives us. That is not the picture that Jesus paints. He says in hell, where this man was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He's saying heaven is a place of community. Heaven is where you will be with one another. Heaven is community. Heaven is friendship. Heaven is relational. Heaven is all those things. Hell is isolation. This man is all alone. There's no one around him to talk to. He just looks up and sees Father Abraham and there's Lazarus with him. Jesus wants us to understand this is a real place and it's not a party. And don't think that you're going to have all of your friends all around you because it's a place of isolation and separation. Jesus also gives us a picture that is a place of anguish. The man says to Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now, there's another word that Jesus used to talk about hell. And it's a far more, strong, far more powerful, stronger word. The word is Gehenna, the Hebrew word. And it actually derives its meaning from a valley just outside of Jerusalem. It's called the Valley of Hinnon. And it was actually the garbage dump of the city. All the garbage was taken outside the city. It was placed in this valley. And, and it was actually burned up. And it was said that the, 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 the fire in Hinnon will never go out because we're always putting our garbage in there. And actually, back in Israel's history, there was a time at which they left the following of Jehovah God, Yahweh, and they started following false gods like Molech. And part of the worship of Molech was child sacrifice in the valley of Hinnon. And so when Jesus is using that word, he wants us to understand this is a place of anguish. This is a place of agony. It's a place of isolation. And it is a place of utter regret. Jesus sometimes put it this way. They will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You ever read that before and thought, what's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Every one of us have done this one time or another in our lives. It's when you go, "Mm, why did I do that? I knew better. And that grit and grinding your teeth, that's what he's talking about here, is an expression of regret and extreme remorse that it's too late. Why did I do that? If only, if only. Jesus said, it's a real place. And you need to think about that. Don't dwell on it, but you do need to think about it. He wants us to see hell's reality because I think there's another point that he wants to get across. He wants us to understand the finality of justice. See, we all want justice. We want wrongs to be made right. We want cruelty to be punished. We demand that. And, and we look at human history and we see guys like Hitler and Stalin or, or more recently maybe like Jeffrey Dahmer or, or um, Charles Manson or some of these people, and we say, yeah, for people like that, there ought to be a hell because they deserve it. 
as brutal as they were, as many people as they brought death to, as, as twisted as they were, they deserve it. Yeah, there, God, there's got to be a hell for people like that because they deserve it. The problem is this. We're not the ones that make that judgment because we simply do not know enough to judge. Oh, we can look at actions and behaviors like that and we can say, yeah, they are twisted, evil people. But the Bible tells us that God doesn't just judge just by appearances. He says he looks at the heart. He looks at the human heart. As you read the story, what's really interesting to me in this is we don't know why one ended up here and one ended up in the other place. We don't know why the rich man ended up in hell. We don't know why the beggar Lazarus ended up in heaven. It's, we're not told anything about that. We're not talking about you know, We're never told who deserved it and how, what did they do to deserve it. All we know, all we know is that there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus. That's all we're told about these two guys. Now, it would be one thing if Jesus would elaborate a little bit and he would tell us like, you know, one of the problems with this rich guy was when he saw Lazarus at his gate, he would kick him out and not let him sit there and, and shoo him away and have his, have his servants throw him out somewhere in the sidewalk. Then he would deserve hell. Or, or if it was his dogs, if he sicked his dogs on Lazarus when they went after his sores. Well, then, yeah, okay, then that makes sense. But we're not told any of that stuff. Because that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not rich versus poor. It's not who deserves hell and who doesn't. Who deserves heaven and who doesn't. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is there are two destinies. And only God can truly judge the human heart. God is the only one who is perfectly just in his judgments. I say that because something I also hear very, very often is people raise the question, how can a loving God send people to hell? If God is so loving and merciful and caring and gracious, then how can he send people to hell? That doesn't make sense. A loving God shouldn't do that. And here's what we need to understand. God does not send anyone to hell. We make that decision for ourselves. We send ourselves. And I think the problem is none of us recognize fully the depth of our own sin. We can see it in every other, every other people around us. You know, we, we, we recognize it when it's really, really bad. But we don't understand the depth of our own sin. And God looks at our hearts. God looks at my heart. And he sees the darkness and the selfishness and the pride and the greed that I keep so well hidden from everybody else. God sees it. He sees that in every one of us. And it is that on which he makes his judgment. And what scripture says is based on that, the ultimate punishment for sin is death. And when God makes that judgment, when ultimate justice comes, it is final. You get all of your life to make the choice. All along the way, you get opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. You always get this chance. You get the chance to choose. But there comes a time when the justice is done and there's no changing it. And it is final. It is too late. 
And that's the case of this rich man. And he realizes it. He doesn't argue that he doesn't deserve it. All he says is, would you at least then, please, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. It might be too late for me, but please do something for my brothers. Don't let them end up here because he knows it's too late. He's made his decision. And the justice is where he's at. There comes a time when it's too late. And you cannot change. Now I was thinking about that a little bit this week. I remember the story of um, my wife and I, we went on vacation. This was maybe four or five years ago. And in, in our home, um, I do all the travel arrangements. I just, I love getting online and, you know, finding deals and checking all these different websites. And, and I found this incredible Caribbean cruise. And, and it left from Fort Lauderdale. And you had to sail on these dates. But it was such a deal, you just couldn't pass it up. So I booked it and I told my wife, I, well, I called her first. And I said, hey, what do you think about a Caribbean cruise? Here's the deal. And she goes, oh, yeah, book it. So I booked it and everything. And then what you could do on the website is when you book the cruise, you could also add the airfare to it, and they would take care of that to get you to Fort Lauderdale. But it was so expensive. I thought, I can find a better deal than that. So I just declined the airfare, and I, and I went searching again, and I'm you know, typing in, and I'm looking through all the websites. And you know what I found out? The cheapest flights are what they call red eyes. You know what those are? The overnight flights, okay? You, you, you leave at, in the evening of one day and you get there in the morning of the next day. Those are like the cheapest flights there are. And I found a really, really cheap flight. So I booked it. And this was like, this is going to be the greatest vacation ever. And it was just such a great deal. It, man, it was, it was incredible. And so the day came. And we were getting ready to go. And we, we had packed everything up. And we drove over to SFO. And we parked the car in the long-term parking and we grabbed our bags and we walked into the airport terminal and we, we walked up to the ticket counter and, and um, the ticket agent behind the counter said, name please. And I said, Kenneth Jensen and Betty Jensen. And she got on her look. Well, Mr. Jensen, I don't see your name on the list. And I said, no, 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 it's got to be there. I, I booked this like months ago. In fact, here's my tickets. Look, look at my tickets. She took my tickets. She opened them up and looked at him. She goes, Mr. Jensen, this was last night's flight. And there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) And my wife gave me a look I have never received ever again, ever before or ever since. (laughs) And I just, whatever it takes, I will get us there, you know, because the ship is going to leave at noon tomorrow, whether we're there or not. So so we went through Boston. We, you know, then flew down to West Palm Beach, rented a car, drove down to Palm... It was just... And it cost me like thousands more. I, I tell you that because in first service, I never finished the story. And people said, well, did you ever make it? So, yeah, we made it. But here's the deal. For us, there was another flight. When it comes to the finality of our destiny, there's no backup plan. It's final. And Jesus wants us to understand that. Because it's not like you can keep putting this thing off or keep ignoring it or keep, you know, just not thinking about it because it is a reality. And he wants us to know that there comes a point where it's too late. And Jesus warned people. No one warned people as urgently as Jesus about this. 
And I think the reason, most of all, is this. So that we would choose a better destiny. See, God did not create hell for humanity. He created hell for Satan and his demons. And at the end of all things, see, Satan is not the equal to God. God's in control. And at the end of all things, we're told Satan and his demons and all of hell are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be an end to these guys. It's going to be over and done with for them too. He didn't create hell for humanity. But the Bible is also clear that there is an ultimate destination for those who will not, will not turn to, will not follow, will not trust in, will not honor, will not recognize God. It's not God's desire. It is not God's intent for humanity. In fact, 2 Peter 3 says, The Lord is not wanting anyone to perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. God doesn't want anybody to end up there. Well then, so why does it exist? Why does it exist? Why do some people end up there? Plain and simple, because he has given us the power to choose. It's been said that hell is the ultimate tribute to human freedom. See, C.S. Lewis put it this way, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. God's kingdom is a kingdom of love, but you cannot force anyone to love you. I cannot force anyone to love me. I cannot do that. That is a choice and decision they must make. I wish I could. I would like everybody to love me. But it's not up to me. It's up to them. And so it is with God. He has given us this power of choice. His kingdom is love. But you cannot force love. Jesus put it this way. John 3.16, maybe the most well-known of all scriptures. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17, I love this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. God brought an answer to give us a different destiny. And through his son, Jesus Christ, God became man and lived among us and lived a a human life that was totally sinless and totally pleasing to God. And then he offered himself up in sacrifice on a cross and he was beaten to death. And he did it so that he could pay the penalty for your sin and for mine. The ultimate expression of God's love is seen in Jesus as he hangs on the cross and takes the full brunt of sin. And it is as if Jesus is saying, if you are going to hell, it is going to have to be over my dead body. Because that's not where I want anybody to end up. And he took that on himself so that we would have this alternate destiny, so that we would have another choice. And yet still, some will not follow. Some will continue to, to reject. Some will continue to ignore or put off a decision and in so doing, make a decision. And so God has created a place where he is not there. And all of humanity has a choice. And if you read Paul's letter to the Roman church, chapter one, he talks about human history. 
And there's this one line that keeps coming up, a phrase that comes up all through the chapter. And he says how God made creation and, and in a way so that all men would see creation and know there is a creator God. But they refused to honor him and recognize him. And so he gave them over to their own desires. And then he did this and he made himself known. But they wanted to do their own thing. So he gave them over to their own desires. And that, that phrase comes up over and over and over. And what Paul is laying out is all through human history, we have had the choice. But we choose not. And he will not force us. He will say, if that is your choice, then so be it. So this man from hell says to Father Abraham, just send someone to warn my brothers. I've got five brothers and I don't want to see them end up here. And, and Abraham replies back to him, but they have Moses. They have the prophets. They have Torah. They have, the pro- they have scripture. What they need to know is plainly laid out for them if they will just listen to it. If they will just read it and respond to it. It's all right there. And, and, and the man says, no, but yeah, but, but, but no. But if you send somebody, if someone rises from the dead and goes and tells them, then they will believe. And in a prophetic word, he says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. They have made their choice. I talk about that because there's another thing that I hear people say very, very often. Well, what about good people? I mean, what about, what about people who, who, are, who are so giving with all of their life and they volunteer their time and they serve humanity and they're just wonderful people? What about that? You mean to tell me they're going to end up in hell too? And, and Bill Hybels, a number of years ago, wrote what he calls the Aunt Edna objection. And this is what he wrote. He said, when, it comes to this, when the subject of hell comes up, often someone will say something along these lines. What about my Aunt Edna? She's a nice old lady. She never hurt anyone. She pays her taxes. She bakes cookies for the grandkids. She's even kind to stray cats. I think she's a really good person. She's just never gone in much for the church thing or the Bible thing or the God thing. So you mean to tell me that because she's not a Christian, she has to spend an eternity in hell? I believe in God, but my God, the God that I believe in, is a God of love, a God of compassion. He would never send anyone like my Aunt Edna to hell. So he says, I want you to think for a moment about Aunt Edna. Because here's what has happened in her life. When she was young, every once in a while, maybe at Christmas or at Easter, she would hear the story of the God who loved her. And God would whisper to her through the story of Scripture, you can learn more about me if you want to. I'd love for you to. I'd love for you to be my child. But she made a little decision. It may not have been overt. She may not have verbalized it. It may not have even been real conscious. But she made a little decision. I'm not going to do that. I will use my mind to pursue other things, not God. And then there would be times in her life when she would look at a sunset or a tree or the ocean and God would whisper to her through his creation, I made this. I made you. 
You didn't get here by yourself. You know that, and you can know me. You can say thanks. She made a little decision. No, I will not acknowledge you. I will not give thanks. There were times when she did something wrong because Aunt Edna is no more perfect than you or I. And God would whisper to her through her conscience, conscience, you know you can be forgiven. You know you need it. You can get a fresh start. I'll do that if you'll confess and acknowledge and repent. Jesus said there's a presence of God. And the one thing, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is convict us of our sin. But she made a little decision. No, I will not bend my knee. I will not repent of sin. And as she grew older, more of the people she knew began to struggle with health issues. And they began to die. And at every funeral, she was confronted with her own mortality. And God whispered to her through her experience, you cannot beat death, but I have planted eternity in your heart. This fear of death and the longing you have for something more, it's there in every human being. And if you ask me, if you say yes to me, you can be with me forever. But she made a little decision. I will not ask. I will not say yes. I will be the captain of my own little ship. And she gets to the end of her life. Maybe she's never said it outwardly, but the truth is she has said no to God thousands of times. She has locked the door of her heart over and over again to him. She doesn't want to confess him, submit to him, worship him, or serve him. All she wants is to be left alone by him. And being left alone by God is what the Bible calls hell. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. 